All right, everyone. Welcome to the Toasty Kettle Podcast, where we help you connect with the past through food. My name is James. I'm your host. And today is episode 57. Before we dive into today's show, I wanted to thank all of you for finding the show. If you like what you hear, make sure you leave a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. It's super appreciated. Now, if you're new to Toasty Kettle, make sure you visit ToastyKettle.com. That's where I've posted many vintage recipes and other tidbits of food history. I'll see you there. You can also follow me on social media on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Toasty Kettle. Now, I apologize for not getting this episode out last week. Things have been so crazy lately uh, between work and family and projects around the house. To make up for it, I'm releasing two episodes this week. So we're going to have today's episode on military rations, and I'm also going to launch another episode about the history of the po'boy. Make sure you check that out. Today's episode is part two in my series on space and military food history. Before I talk about the history of military rations, I felt the need to wrap up just a few points from last week on food in space. I wanted to speak for just a minute about the vital importance of space nutrition. The nutrients that astronauts need in space are the same ones that we all need here on Earth. However, there are some major differences in the actual amounts that they receive and actual amounts they actually need in space. An example of this is iron. In space, astronauts don't produce as many red blood cells, and the amount of iron in an astronaut's diet should be under 10 milligrams. Most of the iron consumed goes into producing new red blood cells, and if too much iron is consumed, it gets stored in the body and can cause health problems. Bone health is also critical in space. I think we've all learned that as far back as third grade. Too much sodium in a diet can cause bone loss in space. As a result, sodium is restricted in an astronaut's diet. We all need vitamin D for proper bone health. Here on Earth, we produce vitamin D just by spending time in the sun. Spaceships are shielded from harmful radiation in space, and as a result... Astronauts have to take vitamin D supplements to ensure that they're getting enough. Space is just generally hard on the body. Time in space causes bone and muscle loss. Blood and blood vessels function slightly differently as well. Consuming enough nutrients won't stop these changes. However, if astronauts don't consume enough, then it will definitely make these conditions worse. NASA food scientists have learned volumes over the years in the development of space food. And as they look to future missions to the moon and Mars, there are many challenges that they need to overcome. And there are no grocery stores in space, no resupply vehicles or fertile ground for farming. As a result, NASA is developing the Advanced Food System, or AFS, to address these concerns. For starters, current freeze-dried food only has a shelf life of 18 months. 
So the food they send up with astronauts in space that's freeze-dried only lasts 18 months. A mission to Mars would last three years. They're turning to thermostabilized food, which was first used on spaceflight with the Apollo missions. Remember, they had the turkey and fruitcake that they ate. These have a longer shelf life compared to the freeze-dried foods. Other experiments have been done over the years regarding growing food in space. And a key component to these long space voyages will be fresh veggies that they actually grow en route. There are 10 pick-and-eat veggies that can be grown in transit. Lettuce, spinach, carrots, tomatoes, green onions, radishes, bell peppers, strawberries, fresh herbs and cabbages. All of those can grow in space. That kind of blew my mind. I wish I can do a little bit more digging into that to find out exactly how that works. As we think about the history of space food, it's fascinating to see how the past is preparing astronauts to succeed on future missions. That wraps up the segment on space. Now we're going to return back to Earth to discuss the history of military rations. Napoleon is known for many things. One of them is his famous quote, an army marches on its stomach. However, there's actually no written record of him actually saying that. In fact, Napoleon was notorious for not feeding his army. There are few things that can boost morale or tear it down among soldiers faster than food. When considering military history, we have to discuss Rome. At the height of the empire, Rome had almost half a million soldiers. Daily life for a Roman soldier was grueling. They would march 20 miles a day in full gear. When they set up camp, they had to build a ditch and a wall around the whole camp. Naturally, a Roman soldier needed tremendous calories to be fierce in battle and continue to function at a high level. Whether it was just marching from point A to point B or actually participating in a battle, a soldier's diet in Rome consisted of grains, meat, produce, cheese, salt, and wine. And the wine that they were given was more like vinegar than actual wine. Had to be clear on that. They really, it was a very low quality, low grade wine, but it was safer than a lot of water sources that they would come across. So it was included in the rations. Roman soldiers would consume a third ton of grain each year. That's incredible. Grain was consumed in the form of bread, soups, stews, and pasta. It was readily available and provided enduring energy. They were also given close to a pound of bacon a day. They supplemented that meat ration with what was available. Their meat consumption varied based on where they were at in the world. Cattle, pigs, sheep, and deer were common, as were a variety of birds and other game. Cheese was also a staple of the diet as well, and just like where they were at determined what kind of meat they were exposed to, where they were at also determined what the cheese was made from. In northern regions, the cheese is made from cow's milk. 
In other parts of the world, cheese was made with milk from goats and sheep. Lastly, the wine that was consumed, again, I'm going to dig into this just a little bit more, uh, very different from the wine that we think of today. This wine was closer to vinegar, and as they were traveling and fighting, Roman soldiers didn't always know where they would be able to find clean water, and this was a fail-safe that protected the army against potentially contaminated or unsafe water sources. One thing can be said about Roman soldiers, not one soldier in writing ever complained about the food. Now we're going to talk about Napoleon. I mentioned the famous quote from Napoleon, you know, an army marches on its stomach. However, there's no written record of him actually saying that. And it's interesting how often that happens through history, where quotes are attributed to someone and they end up uh, not having actually said that. So he gave orders that the army's rations were to be soup, boiled beef, a roasted joint, some vegetables, and no dessert. However, a variety of circumstances ranging from poorly maintained roads to bad weather kept supply wagons from actually making it to various camps. This caused troops to forage and plunder villages for food. And this was a common practice throughout history in war. The American Revolution brought us George Washington. He had a very difficult time feeding the Continental Army. At the time, Congress lacked taxing authority. As a result, there were no funds available to purchase food for the Army. Transportation, logistics, and other supply issues aggravated the situation. Because of these issues, it wasn't uncommon for soldiers to go days without a ration. When they did receive a ration, it was usually a bit of flour and some meat. Often the meat was poor quality or spoiled. In 1775, Congress passed a uniform ration. Included in the bill was one pound of beef or three quarters of a pound of pork or one pound of salted fish and one pound of flour or bread per day. It also included three pounds of peas or beans per week, one pint of milk per day, one pint of rice per week, one quart of spruce beer or cider per day, and a little molasses. Army leaders were rarely able to actually deliver on this resolution. This led soldiers to beg from civilians and supplement their meager rations with whatever they could scavenge and whatever animals they could actually kill. In contrast, the British Army was well supplied. They were not starving. Their daily ration consisted of one and a half pounds of bread, one pound of beef or half pound of pork, a fourth pint of peas or one ounce of rice, one ounce of butter, and one and a half gills of rum. It's a miracle that the Continental Army was able to actually win the war for a number of reasons, and uh, in this context, from how they were actually fed. In World War I, three types of rations came into use by American forces. The reserve ration, the trench ration, and the emergency ration, also known as the iron ration. So I'm going to talk about each of these. The iron ration. This is the first attempt to make an individual ration for soldiers in the field 
And this was first introduced in 1907. It consisted of three ounce cakes made from a mixture of beef bouillon powder and parched and cooked wheat, three one ounce bars of sweetened chocolate, and packets of salt and pepper that was issued in a sealed tin packet that weighed one pound. It was designed for emergency use when the troops were unable to be supplied with food. It was later discontinued by the adoption of the reserve ration, but its findings went into the development of the emergency D ration. The trench ration was issued in the early part of the war to address a unique problem. Soldiers fighting in the front lines needed to be supplied with their daily rations, but cooked food prepared at filled kitchens was sometimes spoiled by gas attacks. The trench ration was the answer. It was a variety of canned meats, salmon, corned beef, sardines, that were commercially procured and sealed in a large tin box covered in canvas. It was bulky and heavy, and the soldiers began to get sick and tired of the limited menu. I guess it was better than risking risking poison, right? So the reserve ration. The reserve ration was first issued during the latter part of World War I to feed troops who were away from a garrison or filled kitchen. It originally consisted of 12 ounces of fresh bacon or one pound of canned meat known as the meat ration. This usually consisted of corned beef. It also contained two 8-ounce cans of hard bread or hardtack biscuits, a packet of one ounces of pre-ground coffee, a packet of 2.4 ounces of granulated sugar, and a packet of 0.16 ounces of salt. There was also a separate tobacco ration of 0.4 ounces of tobacco and 10 cigarette rolling papers, later replaced by brand name machine rolled cigarettes. After the war, there were attempts to improve the ration based on input from the filth. In 1922, The meat ration was revised, consisting of one pound of meat, usually a combination of dried beef and canned corned beef. This was supplemented by hard chocolate, 14 ounces of hard bread or hardtack biscuits, coffee, and sugar. In 1925, the meat ration was changed, removing the dried beef in favor of canned pork and beans and reducing the bread component. The corned beef allowance was also reduced in size. Older rations continued to be issued, however. In 1936, menu planners attempted to introduce more variety to the menu by developing an alternate meat ration consisting of an A menu, which was canned corned beef, and a B menu, which was the canned pork and beans. The A and B reserve or combat ration was canceled after being superseded in 1938 by the C-filled ration. So in World War II, you had the A and B rations, but you also saw the C rations, K rations, and D rations. And I love the names of these rations. So creative. (laughs) C rations were completely cooked, ready to eat individual meals. K rations were short-duration rations for paratroopers and other infantry forces. One major criticism of the K-ration was that it lacked sufficient calories and vitamins based on evaluations made during and after World War II of the ration's actual use by army forces. So essentially, you would have these troops that were dropped in the field, 
and maybe they're sick of eating this food again and again and again. So instead of eating everything like the meal was designed to provide the nutrients and the calories that the soldiers needed, they wouldn't eat everything. As a result, they weren't getting enough calories. And as a result, soldiers were actually slightly malnourished in certain parts of the of combat areas. There was also a danger of over-reliance on these mills, which could cause the three mills to become monotonous if issued for long periods of time. Think about it. Eating the same thing again and again, three meals a day, seven days a week for who knows how many weeks. The K-ration allowance was one ration per man per day that contained breakfast, dinner, and supper. Because of the short duration and hasty nature of experimental testing of the K-ration, ration planners did not realize that soldiers fighting, digging, and marching in extreme conditions would require many more calories per day than a soldier marching over cleared roads and temperate climates needed. And think about the jungles and harsh conditions some soldiers endured. No way a K-ration could be a one-size-fits-all meal solution for everyone. So what was in a K-ration? The breakfast unit contained a canned entree of veal, or canned chopped ham and eggs, biscuits, dextrose or malted milk tablets, dried fruit, pre-mixed oatmeal cereal, and a halazone water purification tablets. And then, of course, toilet paper, uh, sugar, coffee, things like that. The dinner unit contained a canned entree of pork luncheon meat, canned processed American cheese, yum, Swiss and American cheese, or bacon and cheese biscuits. 15 dextrose or malted milk tablets, or five caramels, sugar, granulated, cubed, or compressed, salt packet, and cigarettes and chewing gum. The supper unit contained, again, canned meat, usually containing sausage or pork lunch meat with carrot or apple beef and pork loaf biscuits, uh, two ounces of D-ration emergency chocolate bar, and a tropical bar for the temperate climates. And that wraps up World War II. The rations saw a lot of change as they were trying to address some of these issues in terms of variety, right? So first we solved the problem that you had in the revolution, where we weren't getting the soldiers' food at all. Now we're getting the soldiers reliable food. Now we need to get them food that they actually want to eat. This brings us to Vietnam. Combat rations spanning 1958 to 1983 were called Meal Combat Individual Rations, or MCI rations for short. These were rations that were still lovingly referred to as C rations by troops, even though the name had officially been changed to MCI. These rations were distributed to combat soldiers in a cardboard box, which contained 12,000 calories through a can of meat like ham and lima beans or turkey loaf, a can of bread, which could be crackers or hardtack cookies, a can of dessert like applesauce, sliced peaches, or pound cake. A full ration could be super bulky. So soldiers often took it apart, taking what they needed on patrol by placing the cans into socks, which they could tie to their packs. 
MCI rations had three units, so each of those units contained around 1,200 calories. The meat, or M unit, the bread, or B unit, and the dessert, or D unit. The B unit was often made into an improvised field stove that could be carried in the cargo pockets of a set of combat fatigues. And this was done by making a series of diagonal cuts around the top and bottom edges of the can with a army-issued can opener or a standard can opener to allow the trioxane fuel tablet to burn evenly, evenly and warm their entree. Soldiers also used small balls of C4 plastic explosive uh, as a substitute for the fuel tablet. It produced a hotter flame, and that ball was smaller than the tablet, and it could actually heat more mills. Heating of canned meat items was often accomplished also by inserting the can into the exhaust of a running truck, where it would jam into the curved exhaust pipe end and warming to a pleasant temperature really quickly and decongealing the grease in the can. A second variation that was used by those with ready access to diesel fuel was to take a church key, which was also a needed item to open beer or soda cans, and make the same series of holes around the top sides of the can. Then cardboard from the packaging box would be rolled up and placed into the can so that it just came to the top of the can. The can was then tipped into the fuel tank of a source of diesel fuel and lit on fire. (laughs) So the cardboard acted as a wick for the fuel and the can could be used to heat the rations as well as make tea or coffee. One of these stoves was good for at least three or more men to heat their meal and make their coffee with one fueling. Now the intent of all these rations were, again, that they'd be used sparingly. The intent was that In an ideal situation, soldiers would be on base or in a garrison. They would be fed fresh food with lots of variety. And that was a nice, pleasant thought and dream. However, soldiers would be in the field for weeks at a time with nothing to consume but these rations. And as a result, soldiers really grew to hate them. That brings us to where we are today. Instead of MCI rations, we now have MREs, or meals ready to eat. And as we have discussed, World War II and Vietnam soldiers only eat and carry what sounded good to them. The military realized that nutrition was incredibly important for soldiers. However, a soldier could only get the nutrition if they ate the entire meal. So unlike with World War II where soldiers got sick of just a few varieties of mills, and Vietnam, where the mills were too heavy to lug through the jungle, the military developed a new ration that was lighter and came with more variety. That would hopefully encourage soldiers to consume the entire meal and get the nutrition that they needed. In 1981, these MRE rations began getting used in the field, and they had their official debut in 1983. In 1990, they introduced a flameless heater that was water-activated. It's like a little pouch. You pour a little water in there, put the entree pouch in there, seal it off, let it do its thing. It gets nice and hot. Heat your meal right up. This allowed soldiers to enjoy a hot meal whenever and wherever they were. 
Soldiers also wanted more variety and larger portions, and the military listened. By 1996, the number of food options expanded to 16 different entrees, and that included some vegetarian options. To put that into perspective, to uh, to put that in perspective, today there are 24 varieties in the system, with another 150 add-on items that can be thrown in for variety. Each meal provides 1,200 calories. Three meals a day means you can get a total of 3,600 calories. That may sound like a lot, but keep in mind these are soldiers in grueling conditions. They actually have a lighter MRE for soldiers training on bases that aren't going through the tremendous rigor of being out in the field in battle. Now, (laughs) it's strongly... Discouraged. I got a kick out of this part. It's strongly discouraged to sell MREs to civilians. The Department of Defense requires that resold MREs come with a stamp on the case that says U.S. government property commercial resale is unlawful. Sounds like the government, right? (laughs) Even though they have a warning, resale of MREs still happens. Purchase of MREs can actually be done legally from the companies that contract with the government. They differ from authentic MREs in very minor details. Uh, The U.S. government and National Guard will often distribute MREs to civilians who are victims of natural disasters here in the U.S. and abroad. Now, like other military meals, early criticism of these MREs were that they lacked variety and tasted terrible. Soldiers affectionately called them meals rejected by everyone or meals rarely edible. They contained low fiber, which could also lead to constipation. Soldiers had a nickname for that too, meals refusing to exit. So how bad were they? How bad were these MREs? In March 2007, the Salt Lake Tribune invited three gourmet chefs to taste test 18 MRE meals. None of the meals rated higher than a 5.7 average on a scale of 1 to 10, and the chicken fajita meal in particular was singled out for dis- uh, for rating an average score of 1.3. Early in the war in Afghanistan, among the international troops who were at Bagram Air Base, A single French 24-hour combat ration could be traded for at least five American MREs. So with a French ration being so widely desired, I had to look up what was inside. So here's an example of the French menu. It sounds so French. (laughs) A streamlined but sophisticated French ration pack offers soldiers deer pâté, cassoulet with duck confit, Creole-style pork and a creme chocolate pudding. There's also a disposable heater, some coffee and flavored drink powder, muesli for breakfast, and a little, uh, <laughs> gonna butcher this one, Dupont de Slingy caramel. Now that I've offended every French person out there, we'll continue. Now this next part just sounds terrible. The Vegetable Cheese Omelet MRE, number four, introduced in 2005, is generally considered the worst ever MRE of all time. Soldiers serving in Iraq dubbed it the Vomlet, 
both for its appearance and its taste. It was discontinued in 2009. Now it's time to talk about some fun facts. This week's fun facts will cover space and military. So all food approved for space by NASA must first pass the vomit comet test. NASA has a whole staff of dietitians, engineers, and scientists who create Astro Food at the Food Systems Engineering Facility in Houston. And one of their duties is taking every new food item in the NASA Zero Gravity KC-135 airplane, a.k.a. the Vomit Comet, to see how it'll react in microgravity. If it passes this and several more tests, then it's approved for flight. Astronauts also discover quickly that tortillas were a superior sandwich base. They don't crumble, so there was no need to worry about breadcrumbs getting in the filters and buttons, and they're nice and flat, so easy to store. But you'll never guess who supplied NASA with its first batch of long-lasting tortillas. Taco Bell. The first large-scale military operation to use MREs was Operation Desert Storm. The most popular MRE is the Chili Mac option. Service members will trade almost anything for this single meal. So the French are getting duck confit and deer pate and chocolate pudding, and the Americans are eating Chili Mac. Some other great nicknames for MREs come came in the menu items that were first introduced in 1981. The beef patty mill was affectionately nicknamed Hockey Puck. Frankfurters with beans were named Four Fingers of Death. <laughs> I somehow feel that that was a perfect description for that mill. And finally, turkey diced with gravy was known as Wild Turkey Surprise. Well, that's all I have for today's show. I hope you learned a little bit about military food history if you like what you heard, make sure you leave a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Toasty Kettle. You can also head to ToastyKettle.com to find out more about military rations and other food history topics. Until next week. Mm-hmm.